Welcome to the Kingstonist Podcast, a daily look at news, sports, and all things Kingston. Brought to you by Taylor Audubon. For the last couple years at Taylor Automall, we've been searching for the best loyalty program for our customers. While I'm more than proud to announce our partnership with Canada's most recognized loyalty program, the Air Miles Reward Program. You can now get Air Miles Reward Miles on new and used eligible purchases, finance and insurance products, service parts, accessories, and more. You heard it right, we now offer Air Miles. Taylor Automall and Air Miles, together we will take you anywhere. Terms and conditions apply. Please contact us for more details. And welcome to 15 Minutes With, brought to you by the Taylor Auto Mall. And, uh, you know, before the Tragically Hip became a band, they, the, in Kingston, the music scene was a, a lot of bands. And the, the hip was, a, uh, from my memory, uh, was, a, was a few groups that came together as one. And one of those groups uh, was a group called The Filters. The Flares. And, and I'm uh, <laughs> thrilled to have with us uh, this afternoon, uh, probably one of my oldest friends in the world. We know we've been friends for over 50 years. Yeah. Uh, Lindsay Vellos, who yes, was uh, lead singer of the Filters back yeah. in the day. I know we were talking. I was telling somebody the other day about how it was the it was the neighbor at the lake, and he goes, oh, "So you've met Corey Downey?" I go, "I've known Corey since he used to rent the Pink Cottage when he was <laughs> twelve years old, and his sister Paula and everything." And I said, "But um, I said, yeah, we were in the same band at one time." He's going, "You kidding? You got to be kidding me!" I said, "Yeah, I go, we did a gig. And it was at the Holiday Inn, really, and it was the night that Gord was quitting the band." And so Fraser is there and Ann Arms, like everybody's there. And I don't know what, I don't know, Marge Cook, like everybody's there, right? So we went down and I had just moved here about two months before and um, they knew Gord was going to go back to Queens and stuff and I was going to Queens. And they're like, we're coming out of here, you know, he'll do the first set and you get up and you can do the second set. So that was the beginning of the filters. And then um, Finney Mahone was the guitar player back then, who's from, or Finney McConnell, who's from the Mahones, Kelly Campbell, uh, Morrow. And Rob was still Moral in the band. On drums. Yeah, yeah, Rob was still in the band for like a day. And then um, then he went to Queens too, Rob Baker. And then Gordon and I were in film school together. We had a lot of the same classes, so stuff like that. So yeah, Rob was just a bunch of band of misfit toys. Now you uh, you didn't grow up here, but you spent your summers here. You're you're from Dearborn. Yep. My mom was born and raised in Kingston yep. and my grandpa was a doctor at Princess University. And also taught at Kingston, and my grandmother was a nurse, KGH, and parents both. My dad was from Windsor, came to Queens to be a doctor. My mom was a teacher, and we moved to Windsor. And or my dad took a residency at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit because he had family in Windsor, and was always going to move back, but we just never did. So we spent Christmas here and Easter and all the whole summer. We get, get out yeah. of school, we'd come to Gripen Lake. Yeah, yeah. You and I met. Uh... At sailing camp as little kids. Until we got thrown out. Yeah. Now we quit. Oh, <laughs> uh, whatever. Springer, Hickey, and Cunningham. <laughs> Revolting against Gord. Oh, well. So, and then you came You came back to, you came to Queens yeah. once you were yeah, done I high school? To, I came to Queens, uh, went to school in Michigan for a year, and then transferred to Queens, um, and I, I stayed there as long as I could. <laughs> <laughs> so I could play in band. Well, yeah. So, so tell us, how, tell, yeah. tell, tell me, how did, how did the band thing start for well, you here in Kingston? I was in bands in Detroit and played a bunch of different groups there going back to like 10th grade in high school. And um, when I came to Kingston, I can't remember who was through Mark Kennedy or somebody, but we, um, 
he knew Moro. We met at the manor and he's like, Hey, we're looking for a singer. So we start rehearsing in Moro Seppi's basement. And, uh, and yeah, everybody's just really easy going. It was all fun music. You know, it was, it was a lot of stones and the monkeys and teenage head and all these songs. And they're all really fun, you know, three chord rock and roll songs. So that was kind of like the beginning of it. And then, you know, the filters was this kind of turnstile of players that there was no like, no animosity or anything, but it's just like kind of people moved on to yeah, something yeah. out. So like Finney, life got gets in the way. Yeah. So Finney was, um, uh, you know, he was, he was really funny. He was just crazy back then. And he decided he was going to move to Toronto. So he moved to Toronto. So then Matt Woodward was probably the most established guitar player in town at that time. Yeah. And had been in a bunch of bands and was like a real musician. <laughs> <laughs> and Matt came in and uh, that was probably the, 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 you know, when Matt joined here, that was probably the longest run, but there was a time in between where my friend Doug came up from Detroit and we did a bunch of shows with the filters and he was in the band for like four months, you know, and then had to go back to Detroit. So yeah, it was just kind of a cast of misfit characters. And then Kelly, uh, there was a bunch of, there's a great photo I have on Facebook and it's it, it just in that time period, there was a bunch of great friends and musicians and they were backstage at Jock Hardy opening for, I think it was, um, uh, either the spoons or it was like frost week. Yeah. Kind of. And in that photo is, is, you know, Finney McConnell, Hugh Dillon from the headstones. And Hugh used to hang out at all our shows and he was younger. He was like 16, but it's all the hellion, you know, he's, he's <laughs> like crazy back then. And so it was Hugh Dillon and, um, he was best friends with Kelly, the Campbell bass player. They were both a couple years younger than us. And they all went to Casey together, kind of went to school. And, um, but there was all the, in this photos, like all those, everybody uh, from all, all the bands. Yeah. Right? It's great. It's a great picture. Legendary and photo. Just a haze of smoke. <laughs> <laughs> and in those days, there wasn't a ton of places to play in Kingston. There was the Manor, mm -hmm. uh, maybe uh, Muldoon's and Finnegan's. There was or, Manor. There was the, P, the PG, but the PG was a little more national bands. Yeah. They had bigger acts. Bigger acts. And, um, but the Manor was, uh, there was pretty much just those two places other than the odd gig you could play like the Perth Muse, the Elgin Hotel, you know, like oh. places out outside of town. They yeah. were just like bar fight kind of yeah. places. Um, but the manor was great because like, you know, Brian George was the manager and Ross and all those guys and Francois, but they would really give bands a chance to get started. And that's the hardest thing today is, is to get good. It's really hard. And you could play there, you know, they'd have you opening up on, you know, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, you know, you'd open up, do a set. And then you kind of get your own night and then eventually work your way up to, to doing the weekends and where you're doing, you know, three sets a night times four nights and you got good, you know, you got good fast because yeah. you're playing all the time. Right. And that's so hard today for new bands. I mean, yeah, I mean, even living in LA or even here in Kingston, it's like people want to come out and they want you to just be like amazing. You know, when you play once a month and it's just never going to be amazing when yeah. you play once a month, it's impossible. Right. You have to play, play, play. And the credit that's how that's how the hip got good you know when they went out on the road and they were just playing covers for like a year just going across the country playing playing songs and just getting tight as a band and figuring out their sound and all that stuff so so yeah we did that and then after that i had a bunch of different bands and i got a um uh, i met a guy at a party at folklore <laughs> speaking of fights <laughs> i do believe it was the italian club it was always the, the wildest place and I met this guy, he's from Vancouver and he knew people and blah, 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 blah. I um, got in touch with him. And at the same time I got in touch with him, um, my friend Doug from Detroit and I went down to see a show and a Red Wings game in Glen Falls, New York. 
So he drove down the middle of winter. The Adirondack Red Rings. Yeah, Adirondack yeah. Red Rings. And yeah. his friend was the controller of the room. So we went down. He goes, oh, yeah, Loverboy's playing the next night. So come on, let's stick around for the concert. So Doug and I used to have this thing in Detroit when we were in high school where we would go hang out at sound checks at Cobo Hall and try to get our cassettes to people and our music to people. And we went to the show. and We got it to the road manager. Well, so I meet this guy in Vancouver. Then, then that following spring, Bruce Fairwood calls me, who he just produced, you know, resurrected Aerosmith and bon, he produced Slippery Wet, all the Bon Jovi records. Like he was the hottest producer in Vancouver. And he goes, we've cut this song with Loverboy. It's going to be the title track for the record. And it's just classic because it was a throwaway song. It was like track 13 on the cassette. I, I didn't have my, I had like a, my parents' phone number on it in Detroit, you know, no contact information or anything. <laughs> and they had already cut it. And this was your song. Yeah. yeah. Cut. And I yeah. was like, oh my God, you know, and then I was like, well, I'm coming to Vancouver. So um, the guy that I met at Folklore flew me out and got to stay at his place in Vancouver, found out he was like the biggest drug dealer in Vancouver. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops. So, so that was interesting. And, but I got to meet all the bands in town, like I you know, Brian Adams and the Headpins and, the, you know, Too, Too Loud McLeod and, and the Loverboy guys, they were all really great. And that was, Vancouver was really popping. It's just really starting to explode. So I spent about six months out there recording, and then I came back, and then I, I got, ended up getting a publishing deal with Sony. Then that's kind of how everything started to take off. I started to go down to the wet in L.A. a lot. And then when after I graduated from Queens, I was stuck around here for a bit, and that just came to a point where you know, it was going to be time to – I had to go somewhere. Yeah. You know, because I didn't – you know, even the hip moved to Toronto. You know, like even those guys moved away because it was just – it just wasn't enough. There wasn't enough going on. So, what's and, your uh, what's your favorite memory from the manor? Oh God! Um, <laughs> if, you, well, if you have any, I know there's very <laughs> so many good memories. Well, one of my favorite memories was the first time I did. I, I sang at the manor. Um, I got up. Matt Woodward, the Slam was playing, and they were a big band in town right yep. at the time. Remember that? And and so it was amateur night. So I got up and sang a song, and I, I sang some Tom Petty song, American Girl, or something. And uh, I went to the bathroom and Bernie Dobbin, who ran the Dobbin oh, agency. Yeah. <laughs> pretty, yeah. We had Larry Stafford on uh, about a month, month oh, or so you? ago. Yeah, and Larry, we were talking yeah, about so Bernie Bernie Dobbin. was the guy, yeah. he goes, he comes in the bathroom and, and I'm having a leak. And he's like, comes in, he goes, you know, you're really good. He goes, he goes, you know, I'll manage you if you're, I'll represent book you if you want to put a band together. And I said, okay, that'd be great. You know, so that was kind of like one of those yeah. moments. That was pretty cool, even though it was what it was. But that was kind of nice and to have somebody see that. But the great thing about the manor was there would be, you know, dancers all day, right? So you'd have to get there, like, <laughs> you know, you do sound check or whatever. Then you show up at eight and, you know, whatever's going on. Like, you know, it's just like, it was just a show every day. And, like, <laughs> and you stayed in the rooms upstairs where yeah. the dancers were. So there's just girls walking around naked half the time and, you know, da, 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 da. and I'd be there with Lorraine and everybody thought she was a ripper. Lorraine, your wife. <laughs> yes, my wife. <laughs> but they were all there. It was really funny that they'd come down and they'd watch the bands and stuff. And, but yeah, we had, we had a ton of fun there. And, um, and we did some great opening shots, slots with, you know, Meatloaf and Bertie Cummings and, and just open for some really great bands there at the Manor, which was super fun. And, um, but the fan, the manor was just an amalgamation of people that was really interesting because it was some serious local townies, working class Kingston mixed with college kids mixed, mixed with other locals, you know, it was just a, a very much a mishmash oh, absolutely. Of, of people and, and, you know, kind of people segregated themselves, the, the, the middle floor, the middle, if you could make it through the middle room alive, <laughs> you know, Ronnie Barton protecting me, uh, that was good. Yeah. And then of course I, you know. I'd have my like leather pants on and it, 
Brian George would be giving me a hard time and Ronnie Barton, like, where's your skirt? <laughs> <laughs> but they were all good to me. And then Jeff Smith. And then unfortunately when Ross sold it, kind of things changed. Yeah. 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 It just, uh, it, it, it tried, but it just was never the same. Hmm. It tried, never snows there. And I just think is you know, Ross to his credit was good at spotting talent yeah. in management. He had a certain way of doing business and Brian, you know, it was that way. And Scott McPherson and, you know, the, the whole crew there really ran that place uh, tightly. But yeah, it's still funny. It's like how many friends I'm still friends. Still with. have. Yeah. They, they, yeah. they still like, talk about it. Yeah. <laughs> and then you moved to LA and you got into the movie, but you, you worked with Sony. Yeah. And then I, um, so then I went out to LA, I was there, um, you know, playing in bands. I, of course I moved out to LA with a band. We, we had a band that was two of the guys were from, um, I'm sorry, three other guys were from Detroit and I was from King, living in Kingston. So I go back and forth and we, we did a bunch of national tours with Lee Aaron and Meatloaf and a whole bunch of people, Johnny Winter. And then the band wanted to move to, to, to LA and I had a bunch of relationships out there. So we moved out there and you know, those guys, two of them lasted like a month, like they'd never been on their own. They crash and burn pretty fast. And, uh, my buddy and I who were from high school, were like, we didn't come this far to go back. We yeah. were sticking it out. So. So I did that for several years. And then my manager at the time who managed honeymoon suite, a bunch of Canadian bands was living in Manhattan beach. And he said, I've got, you know, I, my, my lawyer and he were both like, there's an opening at RCA records. So I went and I ended up working at RCA records for a few years. And then I was doing licensing for film and TV. So it was, we were controlled all the masters, you know, Elvis and Frank Sinatra. So it's just like cash cow of money coming in. Like, hundreds of thousands of dollars a day, every day in licensing fees for Elvis songs and stuff. And um, so I learned that I got to know a lot of the film people. And then um, we started a record label with Sixpence on the Richer and Chanel and had a ton of success with that. And it was the licensing and my kind of relationships and licensing that ended up breaking the band. Like really struggled with the band until we got it in this movie, She's All That. And then I got him in Dawson's Creek. And it was one of those things that was just enough catalyst to take the song to number one. And we broke the band and it was really, really a fun ride. I learned a lot. And then that label was sold to um, Curb Records in Nashville. And I could see kind of the end coming. And then I got approached by AEG, which is the Staples yeah. Center and AEG Live and all that. And they wanted to start a record label film di uh, soundtrack division for their film company that they were starting. So then I worked there for about 10 years and then um, until the crash and then everybody got blown out and, you know, just how it is. It's yeah. like you got to constantly... You have to constantly be reinvent, reinvent yourself. yourself. Unless yeah. you're lucky enough, you know, I've got a couple friends. My one friend's been at Warner Brothers running music there for 12 years. My other friend's been at Disney for 20. My other friend's been at Paramount for 11. And those guys aren't going anywhere. So, like, there's three of the jobs, right? And, you know, so it's like, it's one of those things, like, and now with streaming, there's a bunch of opportunities and things like that. So, but you have to, I've been mainly focused on um, less on music projects per se, like for film and TV, even though music supervises a lot of films, I've been working with Perry Farrell from Jane's Addiction and Caesars on a project in Las Vegas for three years now called Kind Heaven. And it's essentially an indoor theme park of Southeast Asia where you get on a train, it holds, it holds 4,000 people, 72 characters, 500 employees a day, and you're you're get on a train and you're dumped off in Bangkok at two in the morning, where it's always two in the morning. Really? Yeah, and it's nightclubs and night markets and food and street performers and all stuff. Well, we got about you know, fully designed. We're in demo, and then COVID happened, and then now it's like 
I don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. So everybody's furloughed. Caesars is <laughs> semi shut down, you know, right now. Vegas is, is still getting hammered. So I think that we're trying to repurpose a lot of that as uh, both the film or TV series like Westworld meets video game. Sure. Grand Theft Auto. Kind of thing. And music runs in the family. Your daughter, Chloe Caroline, yeah. is, uh, has yeah, uh, had spent it. some time in Nashville and back yeah. in L.A. She's been uh, she went to the University of Nashville. She started writing songs in high school. She's had a lot of success on her own as an independent artist. And so we've been releasing them on her own label for the last four years. And she's done really well. And she's making a living. And she's had lots of songs and movies. She's done some acting. And, uh, you know, she's doing the whole social media thing. She's got a couple hundred yeah, thousand followers. Yeah, big on social media. Yeah, she does really well on that. And she's, it's good. She's very genuine. And so she writes every day. We, we just got back in uh, January. We're really on a tear. We went to Sundance. She headlined the big, the big show at Sundance for the BMI Snowball. Then we played the Bluebird, sold that out, played the Avalon, uh, Avalon in, in uh, Nashville, sold that out. And we're like, you know, dealing with the agents and everything was like humming, humming record labels. And then COVID. COVID. So, yeah, it's funny, you know, with social media, there's an artist who I follow by the name of Morgan James, who has a beautiful mm. voice. And she's, it's all been through social media. Your daughter, the yeah. same sort of way. What do you think would have happened to you guys if you had social media back in the day? I know there's, I know there's, jail, yeah, but... I know there's that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. It'd be, it'd be interesting like, because is it easier now to promote yourself than it was back in those days? As I say, you know, I tell young people in bands, it's like the best of times and the worst of times. Right? Yeah. Like when I did my first 45, because I was like in Detroit right out of high school in the punk rock scene and we did a 45 and it cost us $1,500 to do two songs back then. Wow. To record them and make 545s that we would take to local record stores and they'd sell them. So I mean, just sell them for a buck. So now, you know, you, your parents buy you, you could buy a used MacBook Pro for 500 bucks and make a record. Yeah. You know, so like, so that's great. Like, you don't need all that stuff. It doesn't make you a great songwriter. It doesn't make you a great performer. And, and now, unfortunately, you have to clear through the clutter of, of people who are not very talented and uh, to try to get your music to be heard because there's just a lot of bad music. Right. And I never understood this when I was playing the bands. My, I remember, um, most of the labels, when I was shopping my bands, I, I would like try to cold call numbers, like literally on a rotary phone, like just calling, calling, calling until I could break through the, the phone lines because sure. nobody took phone calls at record companies back then. Like if you didn't know somebody have an agent, have an attorney, have a, have a big manager, you couldn't get through. And, you know, now obviously that information's out there. You can reach out to people. Well, they're inundated like Cal, right? oh, no kidding. you know, and, but I never, you know, my lawyer would always say, he goes, well, you know, we don't accept, un I, I never understood why they didn't accept, like there could be something great out there, but they don't accept unsolicited material. Well, now when you've been on the other side of it, you realize that 90% of it's just not very good. You know what I mean? And, and the cream definitely tends to rise to the top, right? And I don't think things go viral. I think that's a bunch of BS. You know, the people say, oh, this went viral, that viral. Lizzo did not just go viral. Like that was a whole well-managed campaign that looked like it was guerrilla marketing and independent. Oh, we just discovered her and she's this yeah. crazy chick. That was, that was like 100% calculated. Right. So that stuff you see, whether it's Chewbacca mom or the rat eating a piece of pizza and everybody's like, Oh, this went viral. No, my friend owns that company in LA and he has 50 kids who look for videos and when they find one, they buy it and then they throw gas on it. Okay. Right? Cause they know how to manipulate YouTube yeah. and get it to the top of the page and all that stuff. So, it for artists today, it's like really about honing on your craft, coming up with some, being authentic to who you are. Screw the trends, 
and then putting, doing what you do best. You know, it's, it's, it's the kind of the old adage, right? If you do what you put your best foot forward, if your best foot forward is songwriting, but you suck live, you focus on songwriting. You know, if your best foot yeah. forward is live, but you're not a great songwriter, you work on your live show and you, you surround yourself with better writers that are going to make you a better artist, right? Because there's a lot of big artists that you think of today. I mean, Elvis never wrote songs. Frank Sinatra yeah. never wrote yeah. songs. Uh, King George, you know, George Strait never wrote a song in his life. It's at 50 number one hits. So like that is a real thing, but that, that type of business is, um, of the music businesses, people are really looking for self-contained acts that write, you know, other than maybe in country. Sure. They do sure. Well, Lindsay, thanks for doing this. My pleasure. Pre appreciate always the good, time. Tim. Yeah. Always good. And, uh, we'll see you across the, the good work. All right. You too, buddy. Okay.